I sometimes wonder how many of you are with us in a sermon series. You know, we, we've done sermon series for a long time. Most of the time that I've been here at Wildwood, I think we've kind of almost always had a sermon series going. And, and for those of you that don't know what that means, we pick a, a certain passage or a certain topic, and there are several weeks that we spend developing that, that one common theme. So uh, some churches you attend, they would have something different every week, and whatever you know, the Lord lays upon that pastor's heart, that's what he shares with you on Sunday morning. That's a wonderful way of going about that. I have absolutely nothing against that. Um, something else that, that we do, that we participate in, is we ask God, what would you have us to know over the next uh, four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks? And uh, what passage of Scripture do you want us to study? What things do you want us to learn? And we prayerfully consider that, and then uh, we develop that into a series. The music that you hear us sing, um, that all takes into account the passages that we'll be reading. Pastor Steve chose the music that you sang to the Lord this morning based upon what we'll be studying, if you didn't know that already. So there's quite a bit that goes into that. But one of the things that, that we've talked about I think for the last, this will be the fifth week now of this particular series, is the reason that we've entitled our current series, The Old Becomes True, is because we are learning that things that are, are spoken of in the Old Testament actually happen in the New Testament. And some of the things that have been spoken in, of in the New Testament and the New Testament haven't happened yet, but we can trust that they will because of the things that have happened, if that makes any sense to you at all. So we're, we're seeing the evidence uh, that just really points us to the fact that everything that God says will happen, happens. It will happen in, in God's own perfect timing and, and according to his perfect will. And, and with that uh, comes the trust that we place in him during even the difficult times of getting from point A to, to point B. And I think that's the, the emphasis that we want to make this morning, is that there are times that we have no idea why things are happening the way they're happening. And, and they don't even appear to be like the kind of things that we think God would want to have happen in our lives. But we really do have to trust him in those times and for those things, even if they aren't things that we want or ask for or, or would even wish uh, for God does work in those things as well, as you'll see today. Now, one of the things that I don't know that I've talked much about in this series that I want to touch on this morning is that a lot of what we're studying has been told to by God. They are called prophets. And in the Old Testament, uh, God would call certain people to speak to and to speak what he would have the people of God to know through. So he would speak to individual people called prophets, and then they would share that information with the people that God led them to share it with, including us today. What's changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that you and I now have direct access to hear those things through the Holy Spirit. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we are given God's Spirit. And so you and I can now hear from God. We can speak the things that God speaks to us because we have direct access. In the Old Testament times, God often spoke to his people through the prophets. And there are books that are written by those uh, prophets that are found in the Old Testament. And they're divided into two groups. They're divided into what is known as minor prophets and major prophets. There are 
12 books in the Old Testament that are called minor prophets. And the minor prophets are, they're not any less anointed, they're not uh, any uh, less important than the major prophets. But their books are typically a little bit shorter, and the information that God is sharing is, is sometimes a, a little less broad than the information that he shares uh, and the audience that he shares it with in with the major prophets. There are five major prophets in the Old Testament who write what we now call books, uh, Old Testament prophetical books uh, that are labeled as the major prophets. Again, a lot of times they're, they're longer. That's not always the case, but um, it is also true that, that they, the impl- implications and the information is, is sometimes broader in scope. For example, the book of the Bible that we're going to study a chapter from this morning is the book of Isaiah. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. It's, it's Isaiah 53 is where we're going to put our primary focus. But while you're t- turning there, let me tell you another amazing thing about this particular book. The book of Isaiah very closely parallels the Bible. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. And many of you know the Bible has 66 books in it as well. The book of Isaiah is broken up into two sections. Isaiah wrote the first part of his book, uh, the first 39 chapters at a certain time, and then later he wrote, and that's called First Isaiah. It was known by the Hebrews back then as First Isaiah. And then he wrote the second part a little bit later. That's called Deutero, or Second Isaiah. That is also 27 chapters long. Well, what's interesting about that is the Bible has the Old Testament, which is 39 books, and the New Testament, written later, is 27 books. So there are amazing parallels between the book of Isaiah and the Bible. And added to that, the book of Isaiah offers a mystery. There's something very mysterious about the book of Isaiah. Let me tell you what it was. In the early days of the teaching of certain books of the Bible, it it was known as the things that were presented in the synagogue were known as the Haftarah. And there were certain readings that would be done. Isaiah was one of those things. And what they found was there were some uh, complications that were and some confusion that was involved when Isaiah 53 was being read. And the confusion came from the obvious implications that were being made in the book of Isaiah saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, in that particular time, the traditional Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they would teach this book and people will ask questions. Isn't this obviously Jesus? Everything that you're reading in this chapter points to Jesus being the Messiah. And they'd have to defend why they believed that Jesus wasn't the the Messiah. So here's what they did. They decided they weren't going to have it taught in the synagogue any longer. And they not only took Isaiah 53 out, they took the end of Isaiah 52 out. So to this day, in the synagogue readings, they will not read all of Isaiah 52, and they won't read any of Isaiah 53. They'll jump from the middle of Isaiah 52 right over to Isaiah 54, so that they don't have to answer questions about the obvious inferences in there that suggest that Jesus Christ is Messiah. So what did they write in Isaiah 52 and 53 that became so controversial? Let's find out. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. 
Here's what Isaiah tells us. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Some translations say, My servant shall prosper. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, here's why this is so important, and this is why I start with this, is that sometimes when we look at the life of Jesus, it becomes so challenging and so hard and so oppressive, it's really hard to find the, the bright light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to find the silver lining. And I love how Isaiah goes, listen, I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be dark. I know it's going to be challenging. But listen, it's going to turn out really, really well. And the reason I think this is so important is because this really does mirror our lives. As a believer, you're going through challenging times. You're going through hardships and trials and difficulties that make no sense to you. And maybe in the back of your mind and somewhere within your heart, you're asking God, God, I'm yours. I believe in you. I trust in you. Why do I have to go through these things? Why are things not working out? Why, why does one thing after another fall apart? And I believe this with all my heart. I believe God is saying, there's some good that comes from this that you may not know, you may not see. It may not make sense to you. Trust me, I'm with you. And I'm going to get you through that. And this is going to contribute to who I'm making you to be. But, he adds this, the end is really, really good for you. It's really, really going to be worth it. You will be so glad that you stuck it out and that you endured through this difficult time and trusted in me because you end really, really well. Well, that's what Isaiah is saying here. He says he's going to suffer. Christ is going to be tormented. He's going to be tortured. He, he's going to be brutally beaten. He, he's going to be denied and betrayed. Uh, it, there's going to be terrible things that happen to him. But look at this. He will be high. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted. And that's exactly what has happened. And that's what continues to happen. And one day it will be true of all people. And one of the things that we learn from this particular passage, if you look really closely at the beginning, you learn how God refers to his son. He, he says this. He says, behold, my servant. So we can see that God says he's, he's my servant, he's serving me, and attach with that the things that Jesus goes through because he goes through suffering. He makes great sacrifices. He becomes a sacrifice. And I think you and I can take from this verse and this text this one thing. Sacrifice and suffering comes with being a servant. That, that this is probably going to be true in our lives as well. And, and when, when believers wonder, why are things so hard? The right answer is blame it on God. That's not the right answer. The right answer is we live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. And God says, you're going to have trouble in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Christ says, I'm going to guide you through it. I'm going to lead you through it. I'm going to give you strength. Not that we take all the hardships and the challenges away, but that I will take you through them and actually use them to contribute to who I am making you to be. One of the hardest, challenge, most challenging pictures that we have in the Bible is how God really wants us to respond to him like a lump of clay would respond to a potter. It's kind of like 
You know, we have this own thought about what kind of pottery we want to be made into, right? I want to be this, or I want to be that. I want to do these things, or I want to do those things. And there's nothing wrong with aspirations and goals, and and I'm not discouraging you from doing that. But in the end, you and I have to decide whether or not we're just going to simply be who God would have us to be. Because who God would have us to be is who he created us to be and the way that he intends to use it, use us. So we need to be that lump of clay and God molds us and shapes us and we go, and eh, I didn't really want the handle there and I didn't really want, oh, so I, that, I'm not happy with that lip that pours, that you use pouring it up. It's not like that. It's like, okay, God, how do you want me to use that handle? How do you want to use the lip that you give me? That kind of thought. That, God, you've made me this way. You've put me in this place. You've surrounded me with these people. You've given me these gifts. Now, how do I use them to honor and glorify best? That's the question that we should ask. And it's interesting, again, how God took his son and he said, okay, now you're going to go and here's the the plan that I have for you. You're going to serve me. And the Bible, especially even in the book of Isaiah, talks constantly about how this Savior, how God's son, uh, anointed and perfect and holy and righteous, he's going to serve the Lord. And that's what Isaiah calls him. He calls Jesus the servant of the Lord in chapters 42. He calls him again in 49 in chapter 50. And the Messiah is described specifically as a servant that suffers. It's not just going to be a matter of, hey, if you need anybody to do this, I'm willing to do that. But I'm not so sure I want to do that other thing. I, I had this one person tell me this one time. I, I didn't know what to do with this. And I, I really did have to pray and investigate God's word because I thought, you know, can this even be true? But this person told me one time, he said, hey, Pastor Rick, just so you know, I'm really not called to be a servant. You know, there's other things that I want to do. I'll give and I'll participate and I'll do, but I, I'm really not called to be a servant. And I was, I was somewhat taken back and, and honestly just kind of flabbergasted. And so my typical response would be, I don't think that's possible, but I didn't say that. I went back and studied and after further investigation, can I stand before you today and say that is impossible? You cannot be Christ and not be a servant. That's who he's called us to be. We are called to serve one another and serve God. And you may be thinking, no, wait a minute, you're taking that out of context. We're called to love God and love one another. True. And what do you do when you love them? Scripture says, if you love me, the Lord says, you will obey my commands. If you love offer others, you will offer yourself sacrificially to do the things and be the person that would help them and aid them better. That's what a servant does. So we're called to that if we're believers, but sometimes we we don't want the hardships that come with that as much as we want the glory of being a child of God because that's far more enticing. Sometimes when we equate ourselves with the example that Jesus set, we struggle with imagining ourselves to give ourselves over to the very things that are, are very difficult for us. And, and that's why we need the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. This is what Jesus says about himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What if God wants to say the same thing about you today? 
What if God wants to say, honestly, this time that you have in this life right now isn't as much about you? You know why? Because you've got me. You've got the Father. You've got the Son. You've got the promise of eternity spent with me. So now, can we focus our attention and our energy and our resources more on others than we do on yourself? Because you're fine. You're, you're, you've got me. Others don't. Sometimes that word servant refers in the book of Isaiah uh, to the whole nation of Israel. Sometimes Isaiah use it, uses it to refer to himself. He says, I am the Lord's servant. Um, sometimes we hear it spoken of in the New Testament for all believers, for the church, those who've trusted in Jesus. In this specific case, what we've just read, he is speaking directly through the prophet about his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he promises this about him. He says, fast forward to the end, just so you get through all the hardship and the trial that he's going to go through. He says in verse 13, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. They struggle with that when they see him on the cross. They see him on the cross and they go, it doesn't look the way that it's supposed to look. If that's the Messiah, like what do we have to look forward to? Because he is suffering greatly up there. And God is telling them, this isn't the end. This isn't the end of Messiah. This isn't the end for you. There will be suffering. There will be hardship. There will be trials. There will be some pain. And, and the emphasis that he's making here is on the eminence of the Messiah who will, in fact, rise from the grave, who will ascend into heaven, who will sit at the right hand of the throne of God, and he will do exactly what he's doing on our behalf today. He will intercede for those who trust in him. He, he will go through the challenging times that you're facing so that you will never, ever face them alone. He will give you strength. He will point you to hope. He, he will be ever an ever-present help in those difficult times of hardship and trouble. He promises to do that, and he cannot break his promise. So you and I look at the cross and, and feel defeated if we didn't have the hope of what chapter, of what verse 13. But he continues in verse 14 because he does describe this servant as suffering. He says, as, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. What he's essentially saying here is that um, Jesus will be beyond recognition in his brutal beatings. He, he will be so marred that you won't even know that he's a human being. That's how greatly he will be beaten. Not only that, but if you listen with your ears, there will be nothing that makes you think that this is God's son because he will be mocked and he will be ridiculed and he will be humiliated on that cross. And we'll think in our heads, that's, that's no place for God to be. That's no place for his son to, to sit. He, he's not meant for the cross, but he is, according to God the Father. He sent him to die that death so that, that we can experience new life. And, and the effect is transformational, and it is transcending. Listen to what verse 15 says. So shall he sprinkle many nations... 
Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So this, this is the prophecy that is to come later. One day, we talked about this last week, if you weren't here, one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess, every leader of every nation. Imagine this now. And go ahead and picture in your mind some leaders of nations right now, whomever comes to mind. They will bow and they will speak, you are Lord. But if they do not believe in the time that God's given them to believe, they will not be his. They will not be saved. And that will not be good news for them. They'll say it. They'll bow because of the awesome eminence of the glory of the Lord that stands before them, but they will not be with him forever because they have not trusted in him. And that will happen nationwide during the millennial time. So despite the horrific suffering that Jesus endured, one day he will be praised and honored and glorified by all, and, and they will announce that they see him as he truly is. Um, when you think about how God does this and, and the way that, that this pattern works for Christ, I hope it will help you to see that God does work in mysterious ways. And we won't always understand why, again, we go through what we go through. But, but it's not like God has blinked. It's not like God has turned away. It's not like God doesn't know. He's using whatever he's taking you through to make you more like his son. And, and he does that in, in amazing ways, even through very, very difficult circumstances. So we go from Isaiah 52 with this picture that we see to Isaiah 53, and the prophet asks this question. Now, I want you to hear this question and, and as if Isaiah, or better yet, the Lord is asking you this question. Here's what he says in verse one. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, the prophet is asking this question. Who believes what I've just told you about Jesus Christ, the Messiah? Who, who has this arm of the Lord? That, and often in Scripture, this is important for you to understand the, the context by which he's writing this. Often in Scripture, the Lord isn't Jesus. I know that we trust him in, as, as Savior and Lord. But the Lord often in Scripture is Yahweh God. Okay, so that's important. So what he's saying here is, who believes that the Messiah, that Jesus, is an extension of God? He is the arm of the Lord. That's what he's asking. And that is what I am asking you today. Who believes? Who believes this? Because there is no in-between when it comes to believing. And, and this is so challenging because... Sometimes we make this more than what it really is. But, but I'm going to say this as clearly as I can, and, and Lord, speak to them so that they will hear from you. We sometimes think that we believe enough to be saved because we believe there is a God. And so we think to ourselves, someone must have made this. A God must exist. There has to be a higher power. But sometimes we stop short in believing that God sent his son not only to die on the cross for our sins, but to be followed. We believe in him such that he is our Lord. He is the one that we serve. He is the one that we respond to. And, uh, and so we imagine that there is a gray area between 
believing that there is someone to believing in God and this son. And, and again, I want to say this as clearly as I possibly can. You cannot believe in the one and only true and living God and not believe in Jesus and be saved because they are inseparable. The only way that you can be saved is through belief in Christ. And Jesus is God's son. So if you say, I believe in a God, I believe in some God, not just the one that you speak of, not the one that the Bible writes of, not of the one that's connected, connected with Jesus, then you don't believe in Yahweh God and, and you are not saved. And I know how incredibly harsh that may sound and, uh, and it, it's, it's, it doesn't even sound kind when it comes to so many other religions. And yet Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He is the only way for us to be saved. So when Isaiah asks this question, he says, okay, this evidence has been presented to you. This is prophecy. It is going to happen. Now, who believes what I have to say? And the exact same thing is asked in the book of John in the New Testament. And there's a reference that's made right back to what we just read. Listen to John 12, verses 37 and 38. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He's saying this is exactly how it was fulfilled. They asked this question, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They see Jesus in the New Testament or they hear of him from a, an eyewitness. They see and hear the things that he did, many, many signs, many, many wonders, and yet they doubt. And they go, I'm not so sure. And, and so the, the question that's asked them is the same question that Isaiah asked 700 years before Jesus actually lives this out. And much later, the same question is being asked to you and I today. Do you believe in the evidence that's been given to us through God's holy word as to who this Savior truly is? Who believes in this Messiah? Who believes he went to the cross to die for your sins so you can be saved and become like your Savior? The, the same can be said today. Despite all the recorded history of things that we've read and studied together for years and years and years, we still go, oh, maybe, maybe it's him, maybe it's not. I need to be sure. Well, the arm of the Lord has been revealed to you this morning through Scripture and through prophecy. And I'm asking you today, what do you believe about him? Because there was nothing about him that appealed to anybody for a long, long time when he first came. Think about this, first came. Think about this. Isaiah 53, 2 says this. For he, this is Jesus, grew up before God, him, like a young plant. Now this is Isaiah prophesying this, by the way. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty, we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire of him. Jesus was born just like you and I and everything that's involved. But he was born in a cave. His first baby bed was probably a feeding trough. He grew up in a forsaken area known as Nazareth. And there was nothing about his appearance that people went, oh, he's going to be something someday. He, wow, look at the features of that young boy or that young teen or that young adult. He is amazing. God, you and I, we're attracted to that stuff, aren't we? We look at people on TV and in the movies and, 
and athletes, and we go, look at that guy. That's amazing. Jesus had none of that. In fact, think about this. How much do we know about Jesus the first 30 years of his life? He gets lost, or his parents lose him. You know, he goes through a, a ritual that all Jewish boys go through. That's about it. For 30 years, no one takes notice about him. And then he goes to be baptized. He fasts for 40 days, and then, it, then it's go time. And for three years, he serves the Lord just as we're being called to serve him today. And Isaiah 53.3 says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Sometimes we imagine our situation to be far worse than anybody else's. Go ahead and compare your situation to Jesus. He does nothing wrong. He's perfect. He's God's son doing everything he's supposed to do. No one knows about him. He's God's son. For 30 years, he's on this planet, earth, and no one knows about him. Then he begins to do the things that God is leading him to do, and they not only don't believe in him, they reject him. They not only reject him, they despise him. They do not welcome God's son into their hearts, much less their lives. They esteem him not. And John says the same thing happened in the New Testament when Jesus actually came. He says in John 1, verses 10 through 11, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The, the very people that Jesus created, the very people that Jesus came to save, the, the very people that Jesus served rejected him and they rebelled against him. And, and when you imagine some of what he went through, understand this, that we are offered the exact same choice as they were back then. And, and really, there's only two choices that you can make. Here are your two choices. You can reject and rebel against Christ or you can receive him by faith and be redeemed. There really is no in-between. He's either your Savior and you follow him as Lord, or he's not. You reject who he says he is, and you are lost. So redemption really points us to a debt being paid in full so that we can be received by him. Our redemption came at a great price. And um, you think about all the challenging things that happen that led to Jesus going on the cross. All the laws that were broken in that particular time. There, there were so many trials that Jesus had to go through, and, and uh, some of them were the religious trials that he had to go through. Some of them were the political trials that he had to go through. And he, he went through a bunch of them after he was arrested. So in the religious trials, he's brought before Annas, he's brought before Caiaphas, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of that day. And it is totally a kangaroo trial. They break all kinds of rules that they themselves made about having a trial like the trial that they had or trials that they had for Jesus. For example, one of the things that they were forbidden to do is, uh, number one, uh, Jewish councils could never uh, execute anybody. They had to pass them over to Roman authority to be executed. Uh, the, the Jewish leaders called for Jesus to be crucified to be executed, specifically by crucifixion by those men. Um, the Jewish leaders were not permitted to sentence anybody during a feast, and yet this was during Passover. The Jewish leaders were never allowed to kill someone the same day that they were sentenced. 
the Jewish leaders were never permitted to kill someone or sentence someone at night. They had to do it during the day. This was a life at stake. They had to be of their right mind. They couldn't be fatigued or tired. They're talking about life or death. And yet, Jesus, both of those things were done. His trial happened before the sun rose. He was murdered and crucified the very same day that he was accused and convicted of, of the crimes that he was falsely accused of. So they broke all kinds of rules. The political leaders of that day, they couldn't decide who was going to take the hit. Pilate didn't want to address it. Herod didn't want to address it. He sends them back to Pilate. Pilate is looking at the accusations. Here are the accusations that were made about Jesus. Uh, number one, he's uh, leading people. He's, excited. He's, he's actually leading, citing riots here. Jesus was trying to avoid the crowds up to this point. He was, he was, lead, he was walking through them so that there weren't riots. Uh, he's, he's leading people not to, to surrender to Caesar. Jesus said, hey, surrender to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Surrender to God was God. Those, those were false accusations. They were accusing him of being a king. Jesus never once admitted to being a king until later during the trial when he finally says, so it is that you were saying. So Pilate knows that these accusations are lame, and he does not want this man's blood on his hand. So he passes them to Herod. Herod passes them back. And Pilate has this idea. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to brutally beat Jesus. And I'm just going to beat him to near death. And they'll never kill him then. These are his people. So he does a, a process called scourging. And I don't want to be overly graphic, but it's important for us to embrace what happens to Jesus. He's tied to a pole so he can't move and can't duck. And a cat of nine tails, which the end of the strands has sharpened bone and stone on it so that when the stone hits the back, it pulls the skin off. And then it pulls the muscle off. And sometimes it even gets to internal organs. And he is beaten to near death. His body is brutally abused. Then they take him and they blindfold him and they pluck out of his beard and they spit on him, and they even punch him in the face and ask him, if you're a prophet, tell us who just punched you. Totally humiliated, totally mocked when he's going through that process. So after all of that, Jesus is almost dead. They bring him before Pilate, says, okay, let's go before the people of God now. He presents Jesus, and he pre presents another hardened criminal. And he says, one of these two get to be set free. Who do you want to be set free? And they say, not Jesus, free Barabbas. And, and Pilate's like, he is a hardened criminal. He is guilty of what he's done. I cannot find any wrong with this one. And look at him. He's almost already dead. He's probably never going to be the same again. And the people of God cried out, crucify him, crucify him. We want him to be dead. And Pilate could not understand why that was happening. So why go into all that graphic detail? I think sometimes, sadly, we fail to realize that he not only took our sin, he took our punishment. This is the punishment that you and I deserve from the wrath of God for our sin. We talked about this last week, but don't, last week, but don't miss this. God is perfect. God is holy. God is pure and God is just. He must punish not holy God. So he does that. It has to be done to justify the sin. And Jesus died so that we would not have to be punished 
Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. People didn't see his suffering as strength. They saw it as a weakness. Jesus went through a brutal torture and terrible torment, and his body was badly beaten, and he hung on that cross to die. And to ensure his death, they pierced him, just as Isaiah said they would. John tells us in John 19, 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He died. He was killed. So the the perception of the bystanders, they're looking on Jesus at the cross and they're saying, this must not be the Messiah. He does not have power to get himself down. If he were the Messiah, he would get himself down. Don't miss this. It took greater power and greater strength and greater fortitude for Jesus to remain on the cross and to see this through and to finish what God sent him to do than it did to free himself and call upon a legion of angels and be be taken away from that. He, He exhibited his greatest power by going through the trial that God had chosen for him to go through for your sake and for mine. You you see, there is a worldwide pandemic that we must not ever forget. And that pandemic is far wider spread than COVID. That pandemic is called sin. And we all have it. The Bible says that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot be in God's presence because of our sin. But Jesus came to be the cure. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So don't forget this. The only remedy for our sin sickness is the sacrifice of a sacred Savior. It's the only way that your sin can be accounted for, atoned for, forgiven, and wiped away. And Isaiah reminds us of this in verse 6 of Isaiah 53. All we, like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. You may not know this about sheep. Sheep aren't overly trusting animals. They have to learn to trust, much like human beings do in, in this comparison. So what a sheep has to do is it has to observe the shepherd. The shepherd will lead sheep to grazing fields. And they're like, okay, where he goes is pretty good. And a shepherd actually has to protect the sheep from wolves. And they see that. And they're like, oh, these these enemies show up and and, uh, the shepherd protects us. And little by little, sheep learn to trust the shepherd to the point that they can actually come to the shepherd and then all of a sudden they've got these shears and the sheep's like, what is this? And the shepherd removes all the wool from them and they're like, oh, what's happening? And then they realize this, uh, that, oh, this is a lot cooler for me. And all that matted wool, that was cumbersome. It actually made some of us ill. The shepherd has relieved us from that. 
And eventually, sheep will trust their shepherd, even follow them to their death. Now, I know that sounds like a terrible thing, right? Well, that's not a good thing, Pastor Rick, that they follow them to their death. I'm just going to share this comparison with you. Here's what we are all destined for. We will all die. You and I will die if the Lord does not come back. I know younger people, you're like, that's far away. You don't know that. You don't know when you will die. You will die. We will all die. It comes with the curse of sin in the world. However, when you die, the Lord decides who lives forever with him in an incredibly blessed place, a perfect place, and those who will be separated from him forever and live in eternal torment. You'll want to follow your shepherd. You'll want to allow him to lead you from death to new life. And we're reminded in Romans 6.23 of what we read in Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's us. We have this price to pay. But the good news that ends in Romans 6.23 is far better than the good news in Romans 3.23 because it tells us the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the promise of eternal life with Christ in heaven all begins with the debt that he pays and that debt has been paid in full. Christ took our sin and Christ took our punishment that we deserved. He took all of that from us upon himself. And throughout all the wrong that was done to him, he remained holy and he remained innocent and he remained a perfect person. He never argued. He never defended himself. He never fought for himself. He came to serve God by dying for our sins. And that's why we see the reference to sheep again in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And the sheep that, be, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He trusted God for what God sent him to do. I could tell you this from visiting uh, a lot of hospitals. You know this too when you're there hopefully with people that are sick and not necessarily when you are sick yourself, but people who are suffering are typically not silent, are they? You, you hear that. One of the hardest parts about being in the hospital is being surrounded by the sounds of the hospital where people are struggling. And, you know, you may be visiting someone in the room next to you. They're moaning or groaning or, or they're in pain. And it's really, really hard to hear that. And, and likewise, um, people who are accused of something that they're not guilty of, they will immediately cry out for justice, won't they? They're not silent. They, they want people to know, I have not done what you say that I have done. They want justice. Jesus was suffering and he was silent. And Jesus was not guilty of what they accused him. He was innocent. And yet he went ahead and died. And Pilate couldn't understand this. Pilate didn't believe that Jesus was guilty. That's why he didn't want to have any part of it. We read this in Mark 15, verses 3 and 5. It says, And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, asking Jesus, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? Look at verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. What was he amazed at? That Jesus would not defend himself. That Jesus was allowing this, this process to go through. So Pilate acquiesced and Jesus was crucified and Jesus was placed in a tomb. Isaiah 53 verses 8 and 9 tells us, by oppression and judgment he was taken away and 
for his generation who considered that he was caught cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked that's the thieves on the cross and with the rich man in his death that's joseph of arimathea who gives him his tomb although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth this speaks again of how out of place jesus literally was he was falsely accused he was arrested he was unfairly tried he was brutally beaten he was mercilessly murdered he was crucified with criminals and he was laid finally in a borrowed tomb and he did not speak out against anyone who was doing these things to him see jesus willingly accepted this role and this responsibility and you and i can look at this and we can blame a lot of people for his crucifixion we can blame the religious leaders for coming after the Messiah. What were you thinking? What were you doing? We can blame the political leaders. You found no guilt in him. Why would you have him crucified? We can even blame the believers of that day that stood by and let the Savior be crucified. But do you know who the Bible says killed Jesus? Do you know who the Bible says allowed him to be crucified? This may surprise you. Listen to Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God put his son on the cross to be crucified. God sent his son to die so that we could live. We saw at the very beginning of Isaiah 53, 1, where a question was asked, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I ask that once again for the last time this morning. Do you believe? Do you believe that this Jesus is the arm of the Lord extended by grace to you so that you can be saved? I'm going to end today in a, a, an untypical way. I'm going to ask if you would stand with me this morning. And I'm going to read the end of verse 10 of Isaiah 53. And I'm going to lead right to the end of the chapter. And I want you to hear the words that Isaiah speaks from God the Father about his son and about those who believe. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. This is the New Living Translation. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear their sins. I will give him the honor of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. Do you see yourself this morning as a rebel? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you need a savior? You have just been introduced to the one God sent to save you. 
trust in him, admit that you've sinned, believe that he is God's son and that his death does atone for your sin and walk from this place this morning in new life because Jesus died so that you can live. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking you right now to speak to us individually, guide and direct our hearts to believe what is true and to act upon the things that you tell us to do. Allow us now to believe that Jesus did die for my sin and that I needed him to do that because I am a saved sinner in need of a savior. Help us now to not only believe, but to grow to trust and to follow and become more like him. And we ask that in Jesus' name.